0: hello and welcome to peach pod a georgia politics podcast my name is kyle hayes and i am your host and we're doing a little peach pod after dark tonight we are recording following president trump's state of the union address and the state of the union response given by Stacey abrams and to join me uh, for this discussion, I've got the whole crew here. Uh, we've got Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? It's going all right. Megan Payne is back. Megan, how you doing?
1: Good. It was just eleven eleven. Everybody make a slightly late wish.
0: Slightly late wish. I wish I was in bed now. And Ben <laughs> Stout is back with us again. Ben, how's it going?
2: It's going well. I feel like I just watched the college football national championship in that it's a weeknight and it's super late and I'm still up. Yes.
0: Uh, was it a blowout tonight? I don't know. I guess you can't uh,
2: really. It was about as exciting as the Super Bowl. Uh, okay. Well,
1: yeah.
0: Good. Then stay tuned for this podcast, everybody. Really exciting <laughs> stuff coming your way. All right. So tonight we are going to discuss President Trump's State of the Union. Uh, we are recording shortly after he finished up his speech. And in his speech tonight, he ran through a laundry list of some of his administration's accomplishments, taking credit for the strong economy and uh, criminal justice reform in a a sort of a notable bragging point for him. Um, And then he talked about primarily about the big issue at hand for him, and his biggest disagreement with Democrats in Congress right now. And that is the uh, border wall and negotiations over avoiding another government shutdown in about 10 days from now. So let's uh, start by going around the circle and getting your first reactions to what you saw from the president tonight. Uh, ben, what did you think of the president's speech?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, my initial reaction is just that he loved this. He loves this. I mean, doesn't he? It just really seems like he enjoys this process um, and he enjoys the theater of it. I mean, I think that uh, it's as close as he'll get to The Apprentice while being in office. And I think he loves it. Um, as far as his, the content of his speech... No real surprises. I mean, he highlighted some of his some of his big agenda items moving forward. Some of those we knew about, some of those we didn't, and we'll get into that. He called for unity, which we all knew he had to do, but I don't know that it was done in such a way that that we'll really see the fruition of that call for that call. And so, um, I uh, you know, I think he called for, it. I think he had to do that, but um, you know. Th- the call for unity could have been more specific. It could have been uh, more detailed in such a way that might provide more hope for somebody who wants to see that.
1: Megan, what did you think? I found the speech to be a bit lackluster. It was just kind of unmemorable and boring. And there were some moments that were memorable, as there always will be, especially with, as Ben mentioned, it does seem that Trump enjoys this. So there was some theater involved in those sorts of things. But as far as actual content, I I can't... I, Even though he did talk about things that I know are important to the nation, just the way it was all presented was so drab.
3: Luke? This was the third longest stay of the union speech. And it was not a Bill Clinton stay of the union where you have a long laundry list of all these insane policy ideas you want to do. It was a not primetime presidential TV show writer an a State of the Union that they decided to make an hour and twenty minutes unnecessarily, and I, I don't, I don't understand why this had to be so long. I, I, I think honestly, Bing hitting on the top of the head because it's just Trump enjoys this, so he's like, let's make this as long and drawn out as possible, so I can stay up there as long as possible. Because as far as presidential, you know, State of the Unions go, like, I don't feel like this was really setting the direction for the year, um, you know. As, as many state of the unions are supposed to do.
0: Well, the core of Trump's challenge at this point is the biggest debate going on in Washington right now is over the issue of immigration and whether or not the president will force another shutdown of the federal government. If he does not secure funding from Congress for a border wall, um, he sort of laid his marker down tonight in support of the wall, he said, simply put, walls work, walls save lives. And he gave uh, the longest section of this speech was on this issue of immigration. Um, But it didn't break new ground. And it didn't really, I don't offer up anything in return to Democrats, in terms of trying to strike a deal, it it didn't even really sort of give the outlines of what a deal would look like. I actually thought that it had less detail than I can't remember if it was it was one of Trump's previous joint addresses to Congress, either the first or second State of the Union, where he laid out his framework, and it was like five or six different points of what he wanted to see in immigration law. This one, he, you know, went on about, a caravan coming to the border. He talked about Mexican cities bussing migrants up to the border because they didn't want them in their own cities. We're not fact checking in real time, but that seemed kind of dubious to me. Do you guys feel like there's any concrete direction moving forward for the immigration debate coming out of this speech?
2: No, no concrete direction that I see. And I think that we already had a direction moving into the speech and we have the same direction coming out of the speech in that direction is the president is going to get the wall one way or another. It can be by a state of emergency. He would rather have it appropriated. And currently he's willing to offer a path forward for citizenship for DACA, for uh, for Dreamers. So that was the path before it. That's the path after it. Um, I don't think that the speech changed that a whole lot.
0: Luke, what, what do you think about the president's approach on this I don't remember the issue of uh, Dreamers and and some sort of uh, protection from deportation or in eventual paths of citizenship coming up in this speech. What did the president accomplish by sort of laying out the same position that he's had without coming forward to anything that looks like a deal?
3: He got to accomplish what he usually accomplishes, which he got to play the president on TV, and he enjoyed it for an hour and a half, and he put us through it. Yep. Uh, because, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, I, you know, I hate to be so harsh on this speech, but I'm going to say the same thing all night about every question you ask me, which is, you know, the basic premise of my answers will be we were blessed that, you know, every president in my lifetime that I can remember, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush and Barack Obama had excellent speech writers who were very good at tying the emotional moments that they had to real concrete policy with details that they wanted to Uh, you know put out there and for whatever reason Trump has not been able to hire people that are capable of doing that and so he gets the platitudes of like here's this person he points out the policy that he wants but there's not enough detail to do anything with it and since he's also not willing to compromise on things there's no like big aha shock reveal I now have you know embraced a Uh, you know, compromise on immigration. And I mean, the especially annoying part with immigration for me is like, this is not the biggest problem we have in the United States by a long shot. It's not that if you poll the American people, immigration is not the thing they care about the most. I, you know, would guarantee it. The other thing is, there's an obvious answer. It's been the same answer since day one. It was the same answer during the Obama administration. The way that you solve this problem is you increase funding to border border security, you come up with a permanent solution to the DACA recipients, and you call it a day. And the Trump administration is refusing to do that on two levels, because they are obsessed with a physical barrier, and they will die on that hill. And they also want to Restrict legal immigration, not just work on the illegal immigration issue, and that is the issue that people care about, not legal immigration. So, on, on that front, I, you know, I think we're nowhere because uh, of this.
2: I, I see. That's why I, I, uh, I gotta call bluff on that because if you gave, if you told the president, hey, we'll give you full border wall funding. We just want Obama era level legal immigration levels. We want a portion of that funding of that package to go to the immigration process and immigration judges and such uh, that, that passes. I don't, uh, you know, you're saying that he has to, I don't know if you're saying, uh, he, he has to step back from the wall or else he's not going to negotiate, but the negotiation is, there. I, I,
3: I mean, I, you're, you're missing the key element in that. Cause I agree with you. If you'd say, and permanent solution for the DACA recipients, because that is the missing key that he, will never ex- accept.
2: I think you'd accept that.
3: Because it's amnesty. Because that's what the folks on the right will say. Amnesty for one person is amnesty for all. And they they won't accept it.
2: No, so for... for No, I, I think that if you put a path towards citizenship, not straight amnesty, but a path toward citizenship, you can get that. I, I believe that there's a path forward if there's full border wall funding. And, they, and you say, you know... Um, Like you said, you put money towards border security, whether you like the wall or not, if you just let the wall in, give him that win, and then move forward on legal immunization, go Obama-era levels, and then you go um, taking care of DACA. I've seen no
3: evidence (laughs) that the Republican Party will will support that. Well, I think
0: the the biggest roadblock to that has been President Trump. So his movement on that would be news, but I, I think you know, as it relates to this speech, the issue continues to be that like, he has to kind of, you know, when you read reporting on this, the thing that you find most often is that Republicans and Democrats are willing to come up with a package that can pass the Congress, but they never have assurances that the president is going to back them up on signing that bill and accepting it. I mean, this is how we got into the first shutdown in the first place was that there was a negotiated compromise on a continuing resolution that punted wall funding, and the fight over that until after uh, the new Congress came in in January, and then the president said he would support that deal and then backed out on it. And so that's what overhangs this discussion. As we get up to this other this now second government shutdown deadline is, is he going to Find a deal that he will actually sign, and it just seems to me that he is signaling that he's not interested in that for the lack of mention in DACA of for the lack of mention of DACA in the speech tonight, but also that he has sort of hinted that he's going to get the wall funding either way, and that his, the ultimate path for him is going to be to declare a national emergency. So I think I just don't think that there was a lot of evidence tonight that there is a deal brewing in the works. Um, Another thing that really hangs over Washington right now is the prospect of a Democratic Congress coming in and really bolstering the investigations into the president from the conduct of his associates to trying to do things to protect the Mueller investigation. Trump had a little bit to say about that. Uh, Here's what the president
2: said. An economic miracle is taking place in the United States, and the only thing that can stop it are foolish wars politics, or ridiculous partisan investigations. There is going to be peace and legislation. There cannot be war and investigation. It just doesn't work that way.
0: All right, so that's what the president had to say. Megan, what do you think about Trump's mention of the investigations and sort of the 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 Democratic Congress that hangs over his shoulder almost literally in the form of uh, new House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tonight. What did you think of his mention of that?
1: I thought it was very interesting to say the least. I it's just one of those things like he was he was practically daring people to tell him he was wrong. And he really just he He's so adamant that he needs to not be investigated when what I think is that ultimately if he's innocent, if he doesn't have anything to hide, then he should push the investigation through and help it end faster. So I just I just saw it as like a big double dog dare you, go lick the frozen flagpole kind of situation.
0: Luke, do you think the president was persuasive enough to convince all the Democrats to just lay down their arms and end all of these investigations today for the sake of legislation?
3: He is as persuasive as I am. As I tell you now, listeners, do not think of a pink elephant. <laughs> what does that mean? It means you're now thinking of a pink elephant. Have you ever heard that phrase before? No. <laughs> yes, if you tell someone to not think of a pink elephant, they think of but a pink elephant. They think of a pink elephant, and then yeah. they
1: there, it was like, in this case, it's like Trump is trying to make the investigation go away. But all he did was just draw attention to it.
3: Yeah, that that's the point. Megan gets it.
0: Okay, I was trying to think of a, a smooth segue out of that reference. I didn't understand. Ben, what did you think of the president bringing the pink elephant into this with this, the investigations? Was it did he gain anything by trying to point the attention of people towards things that he would consider more important?
2: Yeah, um, I thought it was interesting that he brought it into the speech. I don't know that I really liked or disliked it necessarily. I'm trying to figure how to play out. Should the Mueller investigation come back and say Trump's associates were acting in, uh, in an unacceptable manner, but we don't have anything connecting to Trump. Then if he said what he said and then that happens. Um, what does that look like? Because what I, I think what the president is trying to get at, is actually not about Mueller, but it's about all of what the Oversight and Government Reform Committee over new, under new leadership and the Judicial Committee under new leadership will be trying to do. I think that though that, that's what the investigations he's alluding to, uh, does not the Mueller investigation. Um, that's what's on everybody's mind, and that's what's out there right now. But um, if you look at what those two committees are just, I mean, they, they've just had their rules hearings, and they are just kind of getting set to move forward, and the shutdown has kind of delayed them. But those two committees in particular are about to go on a full-fledged attack on the president. I think that that's what he was referring to.
0: Another element of Trump's speech that I thought was surprising just in terms of, it just wasn't a subject I expected him to bring up, was he announced a plan to include legislation and probably funding in in the budget to end the transmission of HIV by 2030, or he said in 10 years, but... 2030, I think, is the date on that. This is interesting to me in the context of the president's overall healthcare agenda. The president hasn't been super engaged on the details of what's going on with healthcare in his own administration, I don't think, but he does he does lay out here a realistic goal to end the transmission of HIV by 2030. But this was a, a detail that came out before the speech. Tonight, and so I took a look at some reporting on this, and there were several people, several reporters that interviewed experts that sort of laid out the the idea of is this a realistic goal for the president to do this? And experts think that yes, it is. That there's been a lot of progress made against HIV transmission, um, and a lot of progress on pharmaceuticals that that help in that area, but that the president is undermining his own goal by undermining by undermining access to health care through sabotage of the Affordable Care Act and through Medicaid policies that make it harder for people to maintain coverage. Um, and so the thing that seems to be standing in his way is his own administration's actions on access to health care. Um, Megan, what did you think of the president's call to end HIV transmission in a decade?
1: Well, like you, I was super surprised and did not expect that to find its way into the State of the Union at all. And it was a positive surprise, ultimately. I did find it a little bit funny that he said to eliminate the HIV epidemic, which was an interesting way to phrase it because I was like, how do you plan to eliminate the HIV epidemic entirely in 10 years if there's not yet a cure? But if it's more about ending the transmission of HIV, okay, I can get behind that. It, it just, it doesn't, it, re, it read, quote unquote, kind of funny at first. But I'm really glad to see the nation taking steps, especially since the city I live in, Atlanta, has one of the highest rates of new cases of HIV um, in the nation. It's really important and it is an issue that is facing the nation in a very real way. Now, what was interesting that he decided to speak about HIV and the thing that, is, that almost always comes packaged with a discussion about HIV are LGBT rights. And he didn't mention that at all, which I thought was interesting considering how much he's been pushing this transgender issue. I'm glad he didn't conflate the two because ultimately these are separate issues. But at the same time, it's one of those things that I almost always expect to hear immediately before or immediately after and found it nowhere in the speech. And so I just kind of wonder... Is it good news that he's not talking about transgender issues? Is it bad news? Is it just an oversight? Questions?
0: And he had other things in the healthcare section of his speech too that seem positive at first glance, there was $500 million in the budget for childhood cancer research. And one of his guests was a young girl who had who had been battling brain cancer. Um, I think that these moments were ones where he got applause from both sides of the aisle. And I think that sort of in the vein of Brian Kemp's State of the State of Speech and the and the early approach to his governorship, these there was significant time tonight spent on things that are bipartisan and not very objectionable in terms of the things that were discussed outside of immigration. But, you know, I think that the other thing that that hangs over these things is how much is the president committed to seeing these things through, given his focus on immigration and, and how much the speech was focused on that? Um, and does he have an adequately staffed administration to actually see these goals through in, in his agencies? Um, were there other parts of the speech that stood out to y'all?
2: Yeah, I just want to talk about, uh, I think that he highlighted some of the things that he needed to highlight. He highlighted job growth in January being double what it was projected to be. Uh, one of the, you talked about um, uh, the few times in which there was applause from both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, of course, that occurred when he talked about Blacks having the lowest unemployment uh, on record in American history, talking about women having uh, the lowest unemployment on Amer- in, in, in uh, history. Is that correct? Was it women unemployment? Uh,
0: it was. The line I remember was that women took 58 percent of the available jobs last year
2: so that was obviously a huge positive and uh and that received huge praise uh from both sides of the aisle and i think that that's what if he if there's a path to victory for him it's continuing to see the economy growing in the way that it is and continuing to highlight those gains in both the the black communities and in the and uh for, for females as well
0: and actually, his line about uh, women taking almost 60% of the open jobs available last year it led to, I think, probably the funniest moment of the speech and the funniest reaction between Democrats in the audience and him, uh, because many of the women, um, all of whom were or many of whom were dressed in white to honor the suffragettes, they... I think, took literally the idea that women were taking a bunch of jobs, including a bunch of jobs in Congress from Republicans, and they were (laughs) sort of pointing to themselves and each other. And, uh, and the fact that Trump got that moment out of them, even though it was at the expense of a Republican majority in the House and, and Republican members of Congress, he seemed to really revel in that Absolutely. Moment. He said, uh, he said um, they went to
2: sit down. He said, don't sit down yet, because you're going to love this. And then talking about uh, how women, there were more women in Congress than ever before. And then there was that fun moment, too.
0: Yeah. And then it led to a bipartisan chant of USA.
1: <laughs> that was so interesting. And I thought, at first, I think many of the women in, sitting in that room were wondering how they should react, because it seemed almost like a, is this, how is this meant to sound? Is it meant to be a good thing? Is it meant to be a bad thing? So then they just decided to take it as a good thing, and it was actually a really great moment. But I was, at first, when he started saying that, I was along with them, like, uh. What? And,
2: and to be fair, I hear what Luke's saying earlier about how the speech writers or even the deliverer himself is not the same as the last three presents. It's not as smooth. It's not as, uh, I don't know if coherent is the right word, but it's just not as clean. Uh, but at the same time, I don't remember bipartisan USA chants and uh, and that excitement during any of the Obama speeches.
0: It, it certainly can be surreal to see Donald Trump uh, taking that stage in in the Congress to give the State of the Union. I mean, just just as a matter of who he was in American culture prior to being the president, it, it's a uh, sometimes an interesting sight that. I don't know, just kind of makes
3: me giggle on occasion. I think one of my biggest frustrations here is that if Trump was a normal president in the way that like, oh, I just lost a midterm and the ha- and like you know, I lost one of the houses of Congress, how about I try to work with this new House of Congress? There's a lot of things he could probably get done. He brought up the biggest potential one, which is, like, coming up with a big infrastructure package. I mean, that is something that Democrats would be very happy to do and the Senate would love to do as well, uh, probably. And, you know, it's just frustrating me that he didn't use this opportunity to give more details on how he could do that because things have been very contentious, and he started out his speech with, you know, talking about that and highlighting that. And I just think on that issue and a, a, a lot of these other issues, he really missed an opportunity to, to do that. And, you know, hopefully he will soon. Um, but I, I just think that would be something that would get the government on a better track. Because there are a lot of things that, like, Trump cares about and that he talks about when he goes and campaigns and when he initially campaigned that he hasn't done that are and they're big things that Democrats would really like to do infrastructure being the biggest one. And so I'm just kind of like frustrated that he hasn't pushed those things harder. And he only talks about them when he's giving an hour speech where he like has to talk about a bunch of stuff.
0: And that again, I think is the cost of so much of the debate being sucked up into immigration. And you know, like if, if the president was going to declare a national emergency to build his wall, you'd think there may have been some advantage to him to sort of just sidestep the whole discussion totally, because the reporting that would have come out of the speech would have noted that, oh, Trump talked about these things instead of building the wall. And then he's going to have the opportunity to declare his national emergency anyways, and, and we'll see where that goes. But yeah, it's just, you know, I don't know, I just, I'm always left with what is the president actually interested in accomplishing? Well,
2: and to Luke's point, talking about bipartisanship, one of the things that he highlighted when getting to uh, transportation was the criminal justice reform. And that drew applause on both sides of the aisle. And I think that that's fair. That was a huge piece of legislation that passed the House, that passed the Senate, that everybody stood and applauded. There were some amazing stories with it. And I really want to highlight that we have some people right here in Georgia that played a huge part in that. So uh, Congressman Doug Collins was in the White House when that was signed. He played a huge role over in the House in getting uh, the First Step Act uh, passed. And as well as uh, some of uh, some additionals, uh, Jason Pye, uh, who works for FreedomWorks, was also in the White House. He played a huge role kind of in the, the think tank side of that legislation getting passed. So uh, a lot of Georgia fingerprints on that legislation. Uh, that was highlighted a uh, great deal in the State of the Union with some really cool stories.
0: And the whole emerging culture around criminal justice reform of choosing uh, rehabilitation and second chances over imprisonment, that's a, an entire model that was built in the state of Georgia and, and has continued to move forward on the federal level. I think that that is one of the things that you know, the Trump administration, but also Democrats in Congress and activists who've worked on this issue for a long time, I think. You know the the name of the act is the first step act. So you know hopefully there's additional steps coming, but that's a, a significant bipartisan achievement of of this administration and of of uh, this Congress, or I guess the last Congress. But can't that
2: show you what's sad about the way news is reported? And I'm not talking like MSM anti media. I'm talking about just the fact that when a piece of really important legislation that changes many many American lives and the way we do criminal justice uh, happens and passes through like it's i mean it was reported on but not in a substantial manner.
0: Yeah, it never had the the gravitas of a a big legislative achievement for the president. I you know, I don't maybe that maybe that well, is isn't Well, I mean, him, there's but. a
3: reason for that though. It's because it wasn't his accomplishment. And I don't mean this as a like dig on Trump. It's, you know, criminal justice reform is something that the Congress has been working on for I mean, at least since the mid Obama administration, maybe further back. Um, So I think that's part of it. And then the other thing is to, you know, to get credit on something, you have to like do significant steps on it. And Trump's Justice Department, led by Jeff Sessions, was really the big impediment to this getting done sooner. On on that point, Trump just finally relinquishing and letting this happen and not standing in the way of it anymore isn't as noteworthy as if he had pushed this thing from day one and got it done. I think that's a big part of it.
0: Well, and the most important thing that the president did probably to push this forward was to pull Jeff Sessions out of the Senate and put him in the Department of Justice, because his vote and and his place in committee is what stood in the way of this issue being uh, dealt with and actually dealt with in a more comprehensive way at the end of the Obama administration.
2: I mean, say what you will, he supported the bill through, he signed the bill, He highlighted the bill multiple times in the State of the Union. I'm not trying to say that he should have been a man on a white night getting amazing praise for it by the press. I actually wasn't talking about the president at all whenever I was saying how it was reported on. I was just saying that people know that such a substantial piece of legislation was being passed, i.e. tax reform, right? Like everybody knew that that was happening. People don't know about criminal justice reform happening, but it's a huge deal. That's all I was saying.
0: Um, Let's talk a little bit about the foreign policy uh, section of the speech. This section is actually one of the most fascinating things to me, because in some instances in this speech, he almost rehashed lines that were put out by President Obama. I mean, he talked about the nation not fighting endless wars. He talked about bringing home troops from Afghanistan and Syria. There are a lot of complaints in the foreign policy establishment about the processes by which he's, he's done these things. Uh, but it, it creates this interesting conundrum for Democrats who, to some extent, I think, want to see negotiations with North Korea over their nuclear program, as opposed to engaging in war with North Korea, who want to see drawdowns of American troops in the Middle East, um, and don't want to see the US fighting in endless wars. And, and uh, the you know last Probably the last couple of presidential elections without an incumbent, 2008 and 2016, were discussed on you know in similar ways, even though it was sort of a flip among the parties and the positions candidates took. Um, what what was y'all's reaction to uh, the foreign policy section of this speech?
3: This is a typical thing to say about this president, but I feel like it's appropriate in this area, which is if any other president had done X, then the response would have been Y. But like I feel like all three of the like really big things that uh, he talked about, you know, uh, with foreign policy of the reducing troops in Syria, reducing troops in Afghanistan, and then uh, meeting with Kim Jong un, like that's those are really huge things that like I feel like the news and media would be paying attention to a lot more if there wasn't so much domestically going on with the immigration fight and the potential Trump investigations and, uh, you know, both in Congress and the Mueller investigation. And so it's just, it's just strange to me that, like, for how huge these things are, uh, Trump didn't give it a significant weight in his speech or, you know, the, like, coverage of the speech hasn't been bigger either.
2: I think that's a great point uh, to highlight. It's just the um, that these are really big things that are happening. But well, like you say, Luke, because of how much is going on domestically, uh, we just kind of pass over them.
0: Yeah. And I, th- I think to some extent, you know, there's, there's the outcomes that I think are intriguing to Democrats, lower troop levels and, and a peace deal with North Korea that encourages them to stop developing nuclear weapons. But the process has become an issue, and the way in which Trump describes the reality on the ground becomes an issue. There was a uh, a Senate hearing. I think this is probably a couple of weeks ago, where uh, Trump's intelligence officials testified before a committee in the Senate uh, with their. Uh, I think it was called. Forgive me if I'm uh, botching the title here. It was something like the Worldwide Threat Report, um, but it basically laid out. And contradicted the president's position on the strength of ISIS in Syria, on the status of North Korea's nuclear program. You know, the the president gave uh, Kim and North Korea credit for no longer testing, no longer having nuclear missile tests. But that doesn't mean that other elements of the program have halted. And at least to me, to date, there isn't a lot of recognizable progress. I mean, there's, there's meetings, and we're going to have another meeting at the end of the month. But what sort of concrete accomplishments have been gained in these negotiations with North Korea, and whether or not the president has actually secured vict- victory on the battlefield against ISIS in Syria? Um, I think those facts are up for debate. And I think this is what makes this issue, you know, this is what I think sort of undermines the president's case on this issue because. You you can look at something like the Worldwide Threat Report and see that what the president is saying is not true about these situations on the ground, even though the goals are probably good. And so it's, you know, it it's a question when when the president is the figure in American government has that has the most power over foreign policy. And you don't feel like he's being honest about what's going on. It undermines his ability to sell that as a major accomplishment of his administration,
1: well, and I don't know that it's necessarily i mean, yes, it's a lack of honesty for sure, but I think it's also a lack of education on his part. I quite frankly haven't had much to say on the subject because I take everything he says that's related to foreign policy with a grain of salt. I know that he regularly um, goes against the advisement of people that are experts on the situations. I know for a fact that he doesn't have very much military training. And so until, until I hear it from the mouth of an expert, I don't really care what he says.
2: I mean, he's the commander in chief, so you, there's reason to care, even if you believe it's true. But
1: I mean, you get what I'm saying, though. Like ultimately, unless he's saying we're going to war and I'm the commander in chief and I'm going to command something, then if he's just spouting facts or, or quote unquote facts or, you know, touting whatever is going on, then screw it. I that's he's that's not important to me.
0: Well, and the, the hard part is, I think, you know, where it's going to take a long time to judge his leadership on foreign policy and whether or not. His approach—that's sort of light on the details and, and heavy on relationships and heavy on personal interaction with other world leaders—was effective or not? I mean, the, the jury is not the jury is out on that right now. I, we don't have those conclusions yet. But you know, it—I it, think that's just what makes this position somewhat unsettling to me. Is it's you know, it's hard in in ways that previous presidents were a little more direct about their stances and their accomplishments in foreign policy and that these were backed up and that that this opinion was unified among the intelligence community and the White House. And that distance between the two right now, I think is, is just what uh, sort of keeps me up at night. Uh, but we will leave uh, the President's State of the Union there. So following the President's speech, Stacey Abrams gave the Democratic response to the speech. Uh, she gave the response from a union hall in Atlanta. um, And it was carried live after the president finished. And as listeners to this program are probably going to recognize, she touched on a lot of themes that were consistent throughout her campaign for governor in 2018. She talked about the fight for access to voting rights. She talked about some of her personal history um, in terms of the lessons that she learned from her parents about service and about how their situation with their health led her to take on debt to help support them and, and levied the criticisms that I think you would expect from a Democrat responding to a Republican-led government um, in terms of the policies that have been adopted by the Republican-led Congress and the Republican president over the last couple of years. Um, but let's just go around and get your reactions to this speech. Megan, what did you think of, of Stacey's speech tonight?
1: So, in stark contrast to Trump's speech, which I found to be unremarkable and drab, um, I found Abrams to be a great storyteller. She didn't have a whole lot to work with because Trump didn't give her a lot to work with, but as far as what she did say, it was compelling. She told a story about her dad and about her, um, her dad, you know, giving something away that was valuable to him, about her family, and, um, that all just makes her very relatable and very human. And I like that about her.
0: Luke, one thing that was missing from this speech was an outright declaration that she's running for the Senate. But a lot of this speech was focused on national issues and and what the Republican Congress had done. What do you think of uh, Stacey's introduction to a national audience tonight?
3: I think the speech was pretty interesting because a couple weeks ago when I was talking about Abrams potentially running for the Senate one of the things I was talking about and hoping is that she did it, it would like feel authentic and feel like it was still, you know, part of what Abrams was working for. And, you know, I have to say, I, I was surprised how well her messages and honestly, like a lot of the content from her speeches that she gave in Georgia, because much of this speech is like very familiar to me. The story was familiar. I've heard it about eight times uh, now, it really worked for like national issues and it still like felt like it was genuine and, you know, coming um, from issues that she cared about. And so um, on that front, I think it was effective uh, use of the tools she's already been using and just sort of, and then how she set up this uh, response I think was really smart because she very clearly played to her strengths and she played to a venue and, Uh, that she's very familiar with. Uh, I I saw her in the IBEW building about a week ago, and it's a place she's been a lot. She is surrounded by a lot of people I knew, uh, you know, in Georgia, and not trying to do it like in a diner or trying to do a, you know, set-piece speech to a, a rally that, you know, came together for the response. So, in you know, in that sense, I feel like it was a venue that Abrams would do well in, and her content was good.
0: One of the most direct criticisms of President Trump came when she meshed together the issue of guns in schools and... Student loan debt? Uh, Here's what she had to say about that.
4: Children deserve an excellent education from cradle to career. We owe them safe schools and the highest standards, regardless of zip code. Yet this White House responds timidly, while first graders practice active shooter drills, and the price of higher education grows ever steeper. From now on, our leaders must be willing to tackle gun safety measures and face the crippling effect of educational loans to support educators and invest what is necessary to unleash the power of America's greatest minds.
0: Ben, if we're looking forward to a 2020 Senate run by Stacey Abrams, this the the issue of of guns in schools was I think one of the first sort of major substantive policy type things that came up, what did you think of the mention of that in sort of the lead up to uh, her criticisms of Washington? Yeah,
2: I mean, uh, I'll agree with what was said previously that I think, of course, we know she's very eloquent, very well spoken. And and the the line that you just heard was very well put together. But I don't know that going after uh, guns in Georgia is the right move for a 2020 race. I think that, and I also thought it was interesting pairing uh, school safety or uh, gun restrictions, however you want to interpret that first line, uh, with uh, higher education, uh, with higher education loans. So, you know, those two topics meshing together was interesting. But, um, but overall, I mean, I think it's delivered well. She was, if you're, if you're looking at her speech, not in a response to the State of the Union, but as a setup for her running in 2020. Um, I thought it was pretty good. You know, her, one of her last lines is, uh, so, uh, you know, even as I'm disappointing the president, I still don't want him to fail. We need him to tell the truth and, uh, and to respect the duties uh, and extraordinary diversity that America has. So um, I, I, I think that she kind of closed with a, hey, we're all in this together. So I think she set herself up uh, kind of concluding there with unity, kind of like President Trump did. But, um, but overall throughout the speech, this was very much what we heard on the campaign trail from her. And, um, and that's what she is, you know, she is a progressive Democrat, uh, with a a dash of socialism, uh, socialists in there. And I think that, uh, that that's what we'll see in 2020.
1: I really liked that line too, Ben. I I appreciated and I feel like a lot of politicians are a bit remiss when they don't call out the fact that just because they don't agree doesn't mean that they want the other person, the elected official or the candidate to fail. And I think that that's something that we all need to keep in the back of our heads, in the back of our minds, you know, just, yeah, we may hate Trump's guts, at least I do. But ultimately, there are some things that we need him to succeed at. And so it's just kind of interesting to – figure out what those things are, and to have that dichotomy.
2: And the way she worded it was excellent, too. Kind of both saying that, but saying stating the truth. Um, I mean, even from a conservative, I thought it was well-received.
0: The place where I thought she had the most disdain for the policies adopted by the White House was on immigration, which is obviously the, the biggest flashpoint between Republicans and Democrats in Washington right now. Uh, here's what she had to say about immigration.
4: We know bipartisanship could craft a 21st century immigration plan, but this administration chooses to cage children and tear families apart. Compassionate treatment at the border is not the same as open borders. President Reagan understood this. President Obama understood this. Americans understand this.
1: I like that she called out compassionate treatment at the border being different from having open borders. Um, I think that it is The biggest issue that we have in the United States right now with our immigration policy, the thing that we're forgetting is that the United States has always been this beacon of hope. I mean, look at the poem that is written on the Statue of Liberty. Um,
0: Yeah, it's, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these the homeless tempest-tossed to me, I lift my lamp beside the golden door.
1: And a lot of it is supporting people leaving circumstances that are not good. We've even had the Pope come down on some of our policies, basically saying that, you know, to refuse people entry is hurtful. So I think one of the biggest things that you can call out is that compassion is letting people in, which Trump actually said was the opposite. And I wholeheartedly disagree with Trump. I completely agree with Abrams. And I think it's important to call out.
0: She directly refuted Trump on uh, the issue of the wall. She said, We must all embrace that from agriculture to healthcare to entrepreneurship, America is made stronger by the presence of immigrants, not walls. I mean, she laid out the frame of the deal. I mean, th- this is where, you know, when the media questions Democrats about the, what they're willing to give on, what they're willing to make a deal. On, She said that Democrats stand ready to effectively secure our ports and our borders, just not in the form of a wall. Um, Ben, what was your take on uh, this immigration discussion in Abrams' speech?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a classic framing the situation in the way that you want to see it, right? So, um, but this administration is chooses uh, choose to cage children and tear families apart. Well, first of all, the caging children did not begin under this administration that was first reported under the Obama administration, and they've gone through extraordinary things to make sure that that doesn't happen. And the additional funding that is being asked for for the border wall would go be to being able to keep families together and providing new housing and accommodations for those situations. So obviously the way it was like set up from the beginning is the way that she wants to frame the whole issue. Um, I understand that what Megan is saying about you know, compassionate treatment at the border is not the same as open borders. That's not a bad one. I, I think that most can agree on that. And when we're talking about immigration, I mean, didn't the president say in the State of the Union that uh, that legal immigrants make our country great? Um, I mean, I think that that's, that's again, uh, an issue that everybody agrees on. It's just um, you know, the, the the thin line of providing that security at the border um, and uh, while kind of reforming her immigration system is, is the big issue. Um, but the, you know, I think that even within this line, although she sets it up in such a, um, I think I'm fair way, uh, there's still a lot of agreement that can be found.
0: Luke, the core of this speech though, was, uh, the issue of voting rights and Abrams new group fair fight action is organized around the fight for voting rights. Um, she mentioned voter suppression as something that, uh, Democracy needed to confront, and she took a veiled shot at Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell when he said that a bill in the House of Representatives introduced by the Democrats that makes election day a national holiday. He said that that bill was a power grab by the Democrats. uh Abrams referenced that remark in her speech. what if we're all sort of in agreement that Abrams is sort of setting up for a Senate campaign here. Do you think that the issue of voting rights is a winning one in a Senate campaign?
3: I don't think if it's a winning issue, it matters or not. And I don't think Abrams is campaigning on it as a win or lose issue. I think for her, it's personal because if, call it voter suppression or not, if Brian Kemp was not the Secretary of State of Georgia and Georgia did not have the policies that it did, there's a good chance Abrams won the governor's race, but Georgia had the cut, you know, had certain set of rules, and under those rules, she did not win. I think she's very personally passionate about it, and I think she was before uh, this race, and I think it's an issue that. Democrats across the country are going to campaign on whether or not it is a winging issue because it is a issue that is fundamental to the democracy, of the United States. And it's something that requires advocacy, regardless of if it will get you more or less votes.
0: Yeah. The voting rights issue is one that I think Abrams has definitely helped elevate nationally and, you know, national Democrats, Democrats in the house of representatives, their first bill out of the gate was a bill that addresses issues around voting rights. So you know, it feels like the entire political world since the beginning of the Trump administration has been revolving around Trump or in some ways revolving around Georgia. And I think we're going to see that more going forward. Uh, But we are now into Wednesday, it is now past midnight, and I'm going to edit this tonight. So I'm going to cut it there. But Luke, Ben and Megan, thanks so much for joining the pod and breaking down these speeches with me and listeners, we will talk to you all next week. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.